Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm still getting over uh, Thanksgiving and Turkey Day, and uh, I'm here with Professor Akil Amar. Happy Thanksgiving, Akil. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, uh, belatedly to you too, Andy. And, and of course, um, Thanksgiving uh, proverbially comes with football. I don't watch this stuff, but for those of you who um, are seeing a video clip of this, because we're doing video clips, I'm wearing my Michigan T-shirt in honor of uh, the University of Michigan, where I was born. And uh, there was just an interesting game between the University of Michigan and Ohio State. Maybe some of you heard of it. Yes, and you can you can you can see who won. And of course, there are going to be those who are going to be quite puzzled by this. Why are you wearing a Michigan T-shirt and I'm wearing no T-shirt? And Yale has beaten Harvard. Um, so why are we not denoting the fact that Yale has beaten Harvard? Well. Um, maybe because it was a week earlier. <laughs> um, um, and and maybe because you, you, you didn't go for, like, I never go to these things, you know, but you always go to these yeah, things. Yes, so I, went, I went to the Yale-Harvard game every year from my, my freshman year in 1974 uh, until the pandemic. Uh, and then I had a good excuse because there was no game uh, for the one year. And then mm-hmm. the next year, which was last year, uh, I could have gone, but I was uh, on a trip uh, with my son, a one-on-one okay. trip with my son. Yeah, and- but, but Andy, j- joking aside, here's there was a reason I said all this. Um, joking aside, I just want the audience to know that you know you are one of the most loyal people I've ever encountered. You have all sorts of loyalties. You have a loyalty to your family. I see that in every way, to your folks, to your kids, to your spouse. Um, um, loyalty to your alma mater. We're always talking about Yale and probably annoying lots of our audience, actually, but, but it's just this deep loyalty. And I have that, too, because I arrived at Yale on my 18th birthday, sight unseen, and, and think of the place, you know, made me who I am. But, um, but the, the, the point is, Andy, also you have a deep, deep loyalty to your friends. I'm the beneficiary of that. That's what this podcast uh, actually, um, it's an outgrowth of that. And so audience members, you're, you're the beneficiary of Andy Lipka's just sort of, you know, loyalty because he's such a cool friend to have. And I'm very lucky uh, to be the beneficiary. Well, I, I appreciate that, Akil. And of course, I, you know, I don't tend to gush on this, uh, on this podcast, but perhaps I will on some, some future occasion. But I will tell our audience that uh, we just spent an hour and a half uh, which was supposedly preparation <laughs> yes, for this podcast yes. and instead was talking about every subject but the podcast. Um, although we did talk about um, the upcoming Moore versus Harper case because it's on our minds. December 7th is oral argument, a date that will live in fame, hopefully, not infamy. Um, and Andy, you and I may very well be down there. Uh, stay tuned, but but we may um, drive down together to see the thing if if possible. Yeah, we'll try to give our audience a report uh, afterwards. Of course, we can't report from you can't, you can't even take notes um, during the uh, the oral argument, I believe. But uh, that's okay. We'll remember it, and uh, if not, we'll have the the transcript and the uh, tape, just like we will today when we discuss um, some more about affirmative action. So. Um, Yes. So happy Thanksgiving to the audience. All of this is going to broadcast a bit after that, but all right. So last time we, um, we talked with Steve Calabresi, but before that we had an episode, uh, on affirmative action. We promised that we were going to come back to you on that. Um, again, two cases before the Supreme court, one involving Harvard, one involving the university of North Carolina. So there's a private institution and a public institution, slightly different, uh, legal issues. 
But uh, really, having listened to the oral arguments on both cases, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to tell that there was uh, a real big difference between the cases. They argued many of the same issues. And as we presented to you uh, some clips, we kind of interspersed clips from the two arguments. And I think, again, it would be hard to tell that, that different issues were being considered. Um, so last time, we uh, just to quickly summarize, we, we put forth um, clips from the oral argument that, first of all, discussed uh, originalism, where the, the advocates and the justices were trying to uh, call upon originalism to support their, their case, and we discussed that. And then there were mostly the rest of the uh, episode uh, entailed arguments that would be in favor of retaining either the current system or something very similar uh, regarding race-based preferences. But of course, that wasn't the entirety of the argument. Um, and today we're going to be giving you a lot of the clips on the other side. Okay, so um, three themes that were that were sounded that we're going to visit. One is basically Justice Thomas uh, and his theme that he questions whether this notion that diversity uh, is in and of itself a compelling interest or something so important that it should that it justifies race-based preferences. Um, He questions that that premise. Um, So that's one theme. We're going to get to that first. Interestingly, none of the other justices really picked up on that theme. So he asked his questions, we have the answer, and then there was really no further discussion of it. So that, you know, that should tell you something, but it's still worth, you know, listening to his argument. Um, Then we're going to discuss the question about, well, there are preferences, but um, do they continue forever? You know, if diversity is a value that is always something worth having, then perhaps whatever preferences are present should continue forever. Or can you reach a point where you've, you've satisfied uh, what you need to satisfy and you've created an environment that's likely to be self-perpetuating? Um, and then finally, if for some reason the court decides that it's necessary to get rid of the race-based preferences or modify them significantly, then what do you put in its place, if anything? And uh, they, they, so all these things were discussed. Okay, so let's let's get started, and we'll get Professor Amora's comments. So there's um, sometimes we'll play a bunch of clips that are on the same topic, and he, uh, Professor may interrupt from time to time uh, after a clip to to comment, or we may wait for all of those on a particular subject to uh, play out. So first, here's Justice Thomas talking about the uh, the question of whether diversity is. Uh, compelling interest. Uh, Mr. Park, um, I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. Uh, It seems to mean everything for everyone. Uh, And I'd like you first, you did uh, give some examples in your opening remarks, but I'd like you to give us a specific definition of diversity in the context of the University of North Carolina. And I'd also like you to give us a, uh, a clear idea of exactly uh, what the educational benefits of diversity at the University of North Carolina uh, would be. 
Yes, Your Honor. So first, we define diversity the way this court has in its court's precedence, which means a broadly diverse set of criteria that extends to all different backgrounds and perspectives and not solely limited to race. And there's a factual finding in this record, PEDAP 113, that there are many different diversity factors that are considered as a greater factor in our admissions process than race. We have a particular interest in recruiting and enrolling rural North Carolinians. In the last incoming class, four out of every 10 students who entered the campus doors were from rural North Carolina. One out of every 12 students is, has a military affiliation, including the most veterans on campus since World War II. Uh, and so uh, we value diversity of all different kinds and all the ways uh, that uh, people differ in our society. Uh, on, on, on the educational benefits question, Your Honor, uh, I don't think it's actually disputed here that there are real and meaningful educational benefits that come with diversity of all kinds. Uh, SFFA's own expert, uh, this is on JA 546, uh, conceded and agreed enthusiastically, in fact, on the stand uh, that uh, a racially diverse and a diverse, uh, uh, diversity of all kinds leads to, quote, a deeper and richer learning environment, uh, leads to more creative thinking and exchange of ideas, and critically reduced bias between people of different backgrounds and not solely different racial backgrounds. Uh, but you still haven't given me the educational benefits. Um, the... Um I didn't go to racially diverse schools, um, but there were educational benefits. And I'd like you to tell me expressly, when a parent sends a kid to college, that they don't necessarily send them there to have fun or feel good or anything like that. They send them there to learn physics or chemistry or whatever they're studying. So tell me what the educational benefits are. Okay, so that's the end of that clip. And needless to say, the uh, the attorney did not tell him what the educational benefits were, uh, you know, in response to that question. So three quick responses. Very impressive and probing question by um, my friend Justice Thomas. First, you heard a response, oh, we value all kinds of diversity, rural versus urban, uh, military service, uh, not just racial. Okay. Then he said, oh, racial diversity actually in our process counts for less as a, apparently a plus factor than some of the others. That's what I thought the attorney seemed to suggest. That might be true in University of North Carolina. I wouldn't know. I can tell you that's not true in many other places. And I've been on the inside of some of these places and seen how the sausage is made and the size of the plus is very different for certain racial categories than it would be for the military or rural versus urban. So maybe that's UNC, but so that's one thing, all kinds of diversity, the lawyer said. Now here are a couple of other things and, and Thomas was, that was asking about and that our audience needs to think about. Okay, diversity, how many do you need in each category? Because the lawyer said, oh, we have more veterans than ever before, more people with a military background. He said one in 12. Well, is that the right number? Is that too high? Is that too low? How would we know? So diversity can become very easily a proxy for proportionality. But proportionality get compared to what? What's your pool? What's your baseline? And in a zero-sum situation, and admissions is, if you you know, don't have enough of X, then you're going to need to have more of X, which means you're going to need to have less of Y. And then, so does diversity lead to that concern? Oh, 
we have, we don't have enough, let's say, blacks, fine. But then do we have too many Jews? Because they're disproportionately represented. Um, Andy, too many Asians. So, so that's, this is what Thomas is getting at. It, you, don't be deceived. It's a, it seems like a very simple question, but there's, there's a deep worldview underlying that. And the third thing that Justice Thomas was actually getting at is, and he, and he said it sort of very elliptically, does that mean that those of us who uh, went to a more monochromatic places got a bad educational experience? If so, you know, um, what do we think? He didn't say it, but the but said, what do you think, for example, about quote-unquote historically black colleges, which are not by law limited only to those who are black, but are disproportionately black. And he's saying, well, did, did we get a crummy education, those of us who went to historically black institutions, not just colleges, but lower levels of, of, of education as well, just because they happen to be more monochromatic? So there was that. So what's the educational benefit as such of diversity? And then he said one other thing. He chose his hypothetical very carefully. Please, audience members, do not underestimate Justice Thomas, um, as some of you may have been taught to do by the mainstream media. I think the mainstream media has not been fair to Justice Thomas at all. They overrated Justice Scalia and consistently have underrated Clarence Thomas. What departments did he invoke when he was talking about the you know diversity? He didn't say American studies you know, um, or history department or sociology department. He said physics and chemistry. Why do you need diversity? And, and, and there are answers, you know, because actually you might say a good physics department should actually have at least one course on the, the ethics of nuclear weapons uh, because many physicists actually are involved in the production of nuclear weapons. Um, Andy, you went to med school, and it's not just about actually the science of the thing. Medical ethics are hugely important, and maybe diversity conversations need to happen about patient populations and doctor populations. So, so there are possible answers you could make, even for a math department or a chemistry department or a physics department, but note that Justice Thomas picked physics and chemistry. The simplicity, the seeming simplicity of Justice Thomas's query should not actually obscure the deep points that he's making with very simple questions. You know, you mentioned historically black colleges, and and uh, you know, I don't really uh, tell you the truth. I'm not familiar with the discussions of diversity that take place um, on those co- on those college campuses. For example, uh, Howard. My son lives in Washington, right near Howard University. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so historically black, okay, but let's say that now they're, I don't know, but let's say they're they are very heavily, um, you know, African-American. Right. Well, if indeed diversity um, has these educational benefits, and one would have to say that this college might be sadly deficient in, in that sense. Now, you might say, oh, you know, how can you say that, you know, the there's this discrimination that's occurred over over centuries, and this is a bastion of African American. Fine, that's but that's that's addressing that's, diversity as a remedial uh, problem, which is yes. precisely what the law doesn't allow. Yes, you see, now we're talking about history and and remedy. And look, he's not on the hot seat, Justice Thomas. He gets to ask the questions; he doesn't answer them. But he's, I believe, thinking in his mind. Well, MLK, Dr. King. He went to Morehouse. That's an historically black college. Did he get a bad education? 
And he did, he did turn it into a slightly autobiographical thing. I think he suggested that he had gone to relatively monochromatic schools, at least as a youngster. And so, um, yes, all of that was there. Very impressive set of questions, I think, for Justice Thomas. Um, uh, now he returns to this theme in, these next, in this next clip. Justice Thomas? Um, Mr. Hinojosa, I may be tone deaf when it comes to all these other things that happens on campus about feeling good and all that sort of thing. I'm really interested in a simple thing. How, what benefits academically are there to your uh, definition or your, the, the diversity that you're asserting? Specifically, I know kids feel you've, you've got uh, studies that show that people feel better and they don't feel isolated on and on. I'm focusing on what you went to college to do, to learn something. Do you have anything that demonstrates that? Yes, Your Honor. And you're asking for the specific educational benefits of diversity? Yes. Those would include, uh, for example, fostering innovation. And there's plenty of testimony in this case from chemists, uh, professors at UNC and from students themselves who have understood the importance of diversity in helping to foster, uh, to foster innovation, to broaden perspectives, you know, in, engaging in students. And this is all the way harkens back to the Sweat v. Painter case and the McLaurin cases where they acknowledged that racial in interactions and dialogue you know, between students, you know, helps better prepare them. Uh, for the world that they're going to work and live in. There is the uh, reducing stereotypes. You know, for our own students it, who testified in this case, it's played an incredibly important role in their education. And when you help reduce stereotypes and isolation, you end up impacting the educational environment for all students because they are sharing their perspectives. They're not necessarily feeling isolated as the spokespeople. Couple things about Justice Thomas. Note how modest and humble he is in asking questions. He says, like, maybe I don't get it, you know. Explain it to me, because I'm not seeing it. And when he says that, he, he says that in a tone that's not smart-alecky at all. Um, I'm a much bigger fan of Clarence Thomas, truthfully, than of Antonin Scalia. Antonin Scalia was a brilliant man, but he had an academics disease, which I share. You know, he's a smart-ass. You know, smart aleck. And that attitude, a supercilious attitude, comes, came across in, um, at oral argument and, and elsewhere. That's not Clarence Thomas. He, you know, and, and this is, it's a beautiful Socratic pose. Like Socrates says, I, I know nothing except that I know nothing. And explain it to me. And, you, and Socrates is always suckering people, you know, into who think they understand things and they actually don't. There's a rhetorical um, brilliance to Justice Thomas's stance, which is a stance of, of, of humility. It's also a very old-fashioned. He said like twice, you don't go to school to feel good about yourself and have fun and to be validated. You go to, to learn certain things, reading, writing, arithmetic. In effect, it is what he's saying. You know, he said earlier, chemistry and physics. It's a very old-fashioned view of education, you see. Now, what were the answers that he got? One was, at least, um, diversity can lead to innovation. That's very interesting. That's pretty abstract. It would have been better if he had actually explained, you know, where and, and how, and, and, and you might be able to. I earlier told you why 
it, it actually might be relevant even in a physics department that we, we have people, for example, who say, well, you know, actually, my family is from Japan and let me talk to you about Hiroshima and Nagasaki because it's a different point of view about nuclear weapons than you might get, you know, from, from someone who, who doesn't have that, that lived experience. Innovation seemed to me pretty abstract. You know, um, a lot of the evidence that's presented in the oral argument, I haven't read the all the briefs, you know, which probably present more uh, detailed evidence, more elaborated evidence. But a lot of the times in the oral arguments, when the, when the advocates refer to the evidence, they talk about things that are based on student surveys. So self-reporting, mm-hmm. um, this was what my experience was like. It was really good. Now, first of all, I would say the students have nothing to compare it to, okay, because they only have this one experience. So they don't really know what their experience would have been, you know, otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, I think a little bit, a little bit suspect. So there, so there's that. And then the other evidence that they use um, are things that happen not in school. So for example, um, corporations might report certain things. They say, Oh, we, you know, we, we made more, not, we made more money, but we, you know, we, we innovated better. Like you were just referring mm-hmm. to or things like that. And mm-hmm. I'm not a hundred percent sure that you can um, make, a great case for educational benefits in school based on what happens in corporations. You know, there's so many things that go on in terms of who goes to the corporations, what are the corporations trying to do? What about their own, you know, diversity programs within the corporations? How mm-hmm. does this really tell you much about what happens in school? Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that the evidence that was presented to the extent that it was, that there was evidence was really quite soft. So um, related to that, on innovation, I'm going to pick something that you know a lot better than I do, medical school. Okay. It actually is true that um, different uh, demographic populations sometimes have different body types, um, different diets. I can tell you as the the husband of someone who's very petite um, and the father of two petite girls, the the drug dosages that that they sometimes are given, you know, actually don't fit their body types. They're, They're more designed for a different demographic. Now, Diet, huge. Vinita learned in medical school, my spouse, to do all sorts of diagnoses um, using her senses because she didn't have as much fancy medical equipment. Different populations, um, different ways of practicing medicine, rural versus urban, different population groups. So I, I could understand a good answer about why you'd want to have doctors who come from um, a, a different um, population types and demographic groupings and, and, and dietary regimes and all the rest. We have more time in this podcast than the, the attorneys do, but that would have been a little bit more concrete on you know, innovation even. Ah, well, we've d- pioneered different ways of administering certain um, uh, uh, drug regimens that work better for, for different populations. Okay. Now, they also said stereotypes. Here again, the, the, the soft underbelly of diversity is the proportionality thing. Okay, how many people do you need to dispel a stereotype? And why do you need more blacks than, let's say, Asians to dispel a stereotype? And if the answer is because the population has three times as many blacks as Asians, okay, that's very interesting. But now this stereotype, anti-stereotyping idea is pushing you, that version of diversity hard toward a certain proportionality idea, which you see that our earlier episodes has a certain danger to it. There are too many Jews, too many blacks. Um, I am one of the um, advocates um, in earlier scholarship, um, along with the great Neil Katyal. We wrote a piece in 1996 all about Baki, and it was all about diversity 
Um, but truthfully, even when I wrote that, um, I myself was more moved by the remedial approach, which is all about slavery and maybe the Native American tribal experience and proportionality as such. But I couldn't say that because the Supreme Court had ruled that out of bounds. And Andy, now I can tell the audience there's a second reason why I'm wearing my Michigan T-shirt today. So one is the Michigan-Ohio State game. Um, but the other is that actually affirmative action, um, the Bakke case, that issue reached the court again after the piece that Neil and I wrote in 1996 called Bakke's Fate. And the landmark cases were a pair of cases from the University of Michigan, one involving the law school and one involving the undergraduate institution, case, pair, companion cases called Gruder and Gratz. And that's what we're debating today. Then there were a set of cases called Fisher out of the University of Texas. But Michigan, University of Michigan is where the diversity theory kind of got sharpened and, and honed and given its canonical expression. What did one of the earlier lawyers say? I'm defining diversity the way the court has. And it wasn't the court in Bakke. It was one justice, um, the swing justice, Lewis Powell. It's the majority that actually you know, put forth this diversity theory, building in part of what Neil and I had written in 1996. But what I'm actually fessing up to, to the audience now, is I actually think the remedial theory, which forces us to talk about history, as in historically black colleges, actually has a lot going for it. Um, and you're seeing some of the softness. Final point, since I mentioned law schools just now and talking about the Gruder and Gratz case. One of the cases was the University of Michigan undergraduate. The other was the University of Michigan Law School. And truthfully, that's part of the reason that I'm wearing my Michigan T-shirt um, for this podcast. In law schools, you can really see this, the importance of diversity because it's about law governing us all. In, um, and and the lawyer, actually, the cases that he mentioned were called cases called, you know, Sweat and McLaren. Those are cases, especially Sweat versus Painter, all about law school admissions process. And that was Jim Crow era case where blacks were actually, in effect, excluded or dispreferred in the law school admissions process. It wasn't about pluses. It was about minuses for historically underrepresented groups, African-Americans, um, in, in particular. And one of the softness, again, which I know I've said this before, but the diversity theory is harder, I think, to see when it comes to um, physics and chemistry, perhaps. And if it's about making money, taking your product and coming up with variations that will work better for this subset of cu uh, customers or that one, or this subset of patients or that one, I can understand actually why companies, you know, might want to have people who help them sell, you know, more kinds of Coca-Cola, more brands of cigarettes with, with different target audiences and different niches and cultures and, and, and maybe even physical characteristics, genetic uh, dispositions. You know, some genetic groups, for example, African-Americans are um, more susceptible to sickle cell anemia, uh, Jewish Americans to Tay-Sachs syndrome and the like. South Asians, actually, we tend to have narrow carotid arteries and have uh, certain issues about uh, coronary heart disease and strokes and diabetes and all sorts of other things. And some of that might be diet, but some of it might also be genetic. Yeah. Um, and of course, there's a lot of interesting points there. One is that you alluded to, you know, that there are cases about law school. Of course, Bakke is about medical school. Right. Um, and, um, you know, I think that some of these issues can be thought of as differently, as you alluded to there, but that when you're training for a profession, um, there are different issues involved than when you're just getting a so-called liberal education. 
In other words, when you're just in class learning, not for a particular, you know, uh, that you're going to take this into the into the workplace in a very specific way, and there's a certain skill that you're learning, um, the, then I think the different con- diversity impacts on that in different ways. And I think that you're, as I'm listening to your discussion earlier, you know, in our, our previous episode, you referred to the question of just how honest we are about the issues here. And so you say, well, okay, how many, so, so certainly one could say, yes, it's, it's important to have, you know, different voices, let's say in the seminar or something like that. But how many voices do you need? Um, that's a question that you raised. Uh, or how many, let's say, you know, Asian voices, or how many African-American voices, how many Jewish voices? Do you need, or, do you need or, one? Or, 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 or urban, need, or veteran, or right. what have you. Right, yes. but, that's, but those are, are not racial. So, and that's, right. you know, what this case is about, and has specific, right. you know, no, constitutional issues. But the first lawyer said, oh, we don't, it's not just about race, it's about urban. It's right, about but I thought that was just everything. a total distraction because it had nothing to do with the constitutional <laughs> questions, you know, in this case. And the, the implication there was, that oh you know as you said oh it's just it's just a little plus and there's there's forty other pluses and you know and and there the implication was they all count the same which is well, nonsense and, 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 and yeah. well but Andy in 1996 in Baki's fate Akhil Amar Neil Kumar Kutyal said it's very important because we were trying to channel Justice Powell and 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 find five votes that it not be actually qualitatively different from some of these other things it would be about the, and it not be the only thing we said. It will be upheld by the Supreme Court only if racial preference is really not very different from preference for rural Americans or for oboe players and and the like. And the question is, is so we said it, it can't it has to be alongside other kinds of diversity factors and not qualitatively more weighted than those other factors. That's what we defended in 1996. And what I'm reporting is I'm not sure that that's how it actually is playing out at many campuses. I cannot speak to the University of North Carolina because they don't have firsthand knowledge of adjudicative fact about UNC and haven't read the record, but I'm skeptical. Right, and even those uh, in the oral argument, um, when, for example, Justice Sotomayor spoke up quite a lot about, well, you've got this factor, you've got that factor, there's many, many factors. She did not address the question about whether the factors were weighted equally um, and, and that certainly is a factor. But anyway, getting back to, to what I was saying about, about how many voices do you need, um, I think that you might say, well, let's say you have one voice in a seminar of a particular race or something like that. Then you get into questions of, put, of, that, of stereotyping and also is that individual being forced to speak for their race? Yes. And that's that's yes. unfortunate. You know, so maybe you need more than one or something like that. But so, how many? Well, the temptation is to say, as you said, well, it should be proportionate, like America. But that really remains to be proven that that's actually the correct uh, proportion from the point of view of educational benefit. There's certainly a certain socially just, uh, you know, sense that one can get from yeah, it should be like America. And Justice Kagan's going to talk about that in a quote that we have. Have later, but really, if it's really about educational benefits, I think it remains to be proven. And you know, Keo, that I like to see hard evidence on things. And you, you do. 
Yeah. So, I'd, you know, I, I think it remains to be proven that an, that actually perhaps it should be disproportionately high for certain groups in order to get. Uh, I, at one point, Justice Alito says, well, what about, you know, Afghani students? You know, at the most, you're going to have one. Is that enough? Maybe we need to have a lot of them, you know, in order for the Afghani voice to be heard. So, I mean, I think he's being a little facetious, but it actually is is an argument, you know, when you compare to this. Okay, so so that... I, I, I don't think it's facetious. I think he's asking the deep question about, in effect, proportionality. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So these are some of the, the issues that I think perhaps were not fully addressed in this discussion, but um, but at least they're they're brought up by this line of thinking. And, and, what, and one other thing, the reason the Af- he uses Afghani is because the federal criteria draw a line between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Indian Americans, I happen to be Indian American. My, my parents have come from, were born in undivided India, account as Asian. Uh, Pakistani Americans count as Asian. My parents came from actually that part of undivided India that's now Pakistan. Um, our family left during, was, was forced out um, during the, the partition of the country. But the current federal guidelines and the University of North Carolina lawyer didn't know this actually in the oral argument because he was asked a question about what counts as Asian. The current, you know, federal rules, because UNC basically says we follow the federal classifications, and the federal classifications have boxes, okay? And you check boxes, okay? And the boxes have four corners to them. They, they've, they've got actually their containers, and you're either in the container or out of the container. And they draw the line between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Afghanistan does not count as um, Asian American. Pakistan does. So, oh, do not underestimate. This is not facetious. Sam Alito has done his homework, and so has Clarence Thomas, um, and and they're asking deeply probing questions with seemingly simple hypotheticals. So now we're going to move on to a, a somewhat different um, point here in the argument, which is going back to the cases that you were talking about, Akil, the earlier cases. At one point, Justice O'Connor makes an allusion to uh, the notion that she doesn't think we're going to need more than another 25 years of these preferences. And, you know, some of the uh, advocates here interpret that to mean, okay, in 25 years they have to go away. Um, others interpret it to mean, well, it's less than 25 years, so they don't have to go away. And others interpret it to mean this was just a rhetorical device or a guideline or, you know, uh, so... Right. Floor, but, floor ceiling, or fluff. Right. But in any event, it, it's, it is expressing an important point, which is, um, do these preferences endure forever? Um, or if not, when do they go away? Or how do we tell when they're supposed to go away? Um, and that's uh, a point which was bandied about quite a lot, which suggests to me that the justices are going to talk about this in their opinions. Um, that this is going to have something to do with the way the rulings are going to come out. At any rate, let's listen to some of this discussion. So we're going to start with the discussion um, during the Harvard case. We're going to go in chronological order here within the case. So there were uh, three clips within the Harvard case and two within the North Carolina case. So we're starting here with the uh, Harvard case, and we're starting with uh, the justice we haven't heard much from, Justice Gorsuch. Uh, Justice uh, Gorsuch. Yeah, I, I just uh, was hoping to get an answer to the second half of the question, which oh, was okay. when, when does Harvard anticipate 
this will end. Uh, yeah. Rutter spoke of it being a 25-year window, as you're well aware. Harvard could tomorrow do without federal funds and continue to discriminate on the basis of race however it pleased. Um, I'm sure that would be a hardship. But uh, wh wh what, is, what is Harvard's view on how long this will take? So Harvard, like the Solicitor General and like UNC, understood all four paragraphs of what Justice O'Connor wrote in her opinion and takes it to heart. What Justice O'Connor said was, it's been 25 years since Grutter. There's evidence that our society is changing. It is, we expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary. So Harvard agrees with that? And does Harvard agree with that? I don't, I, Harvard does not currently, based on its data, expect that in 2028, it will have been able to use a only race-neutral alternative. So, so, so what this, so but what I what, do what agree are, with, what if, are I, if I may. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, just, it's a real simple question. If Harvard doesn't have an answer, that's fine. But does Harvard have some view about when? Harvard, yes, Harvard's view about when doesn't have a date on it. Harvard takes to heart Justice O'Connor's opinion that, quote, in the context of higher education, the durational requirement can be met by periodic reviews to determine whether racial preferences are still necessary okay. to achieve student body diversity. Okay, so that was Justice Gorsuch. Um, next, we have Justice Barrett uh, hearkening back to this. And then Justice O'Connor and Grutter again referred back to Harvard's admissions process. And I want to know whether Harvard's admissions process has meaningfully changed from the time that Justice Powell held it up. I mean, what Justice Powell found attractive about it, what Justice O'Connor endorsed, was the holistic aspect of it, and that race can be used as a tip. In its essence, is it the same? Yes, race can be used as a tip, as one of many, many, many tips in an effort to achieve diversity that is across many, many dimensions beyond ethnic. And, and so in the way that Harvard thinks about its admissions process, it is the same now as it was in Baki. Yes, Harvard is, can I just give yeah, one, oh, a one sentence sure. explication yeah. of that? What the Harvard Admissions Committee is attempting to do with the benefit, the luxury of a pool of applicants that is supremely qualified is to bring together a class of 1,600 matriculants who are best in the judgment of the admissions committee and the faculty that oversees it, are best able to learn from and teach each other as an organic whole. So my question is, we've been talking a lot about endpoint, but my question is, so Baki was, you know, almost 50 years ago now, if Harvard's admissions process is essentially the same in the way that it accounts for race and thinking about endpoints. And I, I recognize and you describe some of the things that Harvard is doing to try to recruit more minority applicants, but why are we to think that there will be an endpoint? And Grutter's pretty insistent. I mean, Grutter says the requirement that all race-conscious admissions programs have a termination point. Um, so there has to be one, and if it really hasn't changed much since Baki. So the system that is, we're taking race into account as one factor among many, 
obviously the extent to which race is race qua race is a factor is dependent on the extent to which so-called race neutral alternatives have already helped Harvard to matriculate a class that is diverse along this dimension and others. Okay. Um, next, we have some some more with uh, Justice Barrett, but this time she's conversing with uh, Solicitor General uh, Prelogar. General, if we were talking about the 25-year mark, so let's imagine we fast forward and it's you know five years from now and we're considering whether to... Um, same question. Would it be overruling Grutter at that point to say this is the end point, we're at 25 years, no more race consciousness in admissions? I think it would if this court based that decision on the nature of the compelling interest here. I just don't think it's a tenable way to read Grutter to say that the court was suggesting that 25 years from now, poof, the interest in diversity in higher education is no longer compelling. That is and will remain a compelling interest. And Grutter observed that over time, it would be possible for schools and universities to achieve that interest without having to take race into account. And I understand the concerns, Justice Barrett, that you've raised, Justice Kavanaugh, that you've raised about the fact that the arc of progress in society has perhaps been slower than the Grutter Court imagined. I think if this court has those concerns, it could emphasize that the narrow tailoring requirement remains very strict in this case. Universities should be held to a high standard and a heavy burden to explore those alternatives, to put into practice the race neutral uh, alternatives that currently exist and to try to get to the point that the Grutter Court imagined and that we will eventually reach as a nation where it is no longer necessary to take race into account. But what if the structural barriers, I mean, there's not a remedial justification on the table here. Our precedents rule that out. What if the structural barriers just make it impossible 25 years from now um, to sit here and say that without race-conscious admissions, you know, especially if Harvard wants to keep everything exactly the same with respect to its other metrics like SAT scores, not dropping at all, and, and the museum and the squash team and all of that stuff. Um, what if it's just impossible? Um, and so what if Grutter was grossly optimistic in what it thought was achievable? And perhaps, you know, Grutter, as we've talked about earlier in the argument, emphasized the risky and potentially poisonous nature of race classifications um, what if there's no end point? I mean, could we still say that there's a compelling interest in the educational benefit of a diverse classroom if it comes at the cost of something that Grutter itself recognized was very dangerous and corrosive to society? I do think that, yes, the compelling interest would still exist there. I recognize the force of the point that there are structural barriers that can impede progress, but I think it would be wrong to suggest that those barriers are going to exist in perpetuity in all... Okay. So that's the, those are the clips from the Harvard case. Um, now we go on to the North Carolina case. You can see there's a lot here um, in, in these arguments. Uh, for, so, for example, in that, in that last clip... Um, Justice Barrett brought up the notion that race preferences were corrosive, as she put it. So she said, okay, there's a cost to these preferences, and perhaps we're not taking that into account. So that, that was an interesting point. So now we have another clip, and here we have uh, a number of the justices speaking, including Justices Alito, Justice Barrett, and Chief Justice Roberts. What is your goal, and how will a court ever be able to determine whether your goal has been reached? Our, our goal is 
to achieve the educational benefits of diversity. And I understand that that is a, a qualitative standard that is difficult to measure, uh, but I do not believe uh, that uh, a standard merely being qualitative uh, means that it is not susceptible to, to rigorous review. And if I could give an example, so we are subject to a statutory mandate that we create a, an open and uh, tolerant speech environment for all sorts of views, even views that many find disagreeable. And we engage in the same kind of analysis to measure whether we are meeting this standard. It's, it pr it's principally uh, survey-based as well as uh, examination of uh, objective. Your matters. brief repeatedly refers to certain students as members of underrepresented minorities, right? What does that mean? Why is that significant? So I think this is, I think this is helpful uh, because this pierces the main, I think, misunderstanding about how our process works. Uh, we do define uh, certain uh, groups based on their overall representation in the state of North Carolina. That's, that stems from a consent decree that the University of North Carolina entered with the Reagan well, administration. Well, I mean, this is really pretty simple. Suppose you yep. assembled a student body in which the various racial groups coincide almost exactly to the percentage of those racial groups in the general population. Would you say, okay, now we've done it, we've achieved adversity? No, Your Honor, and I don't think that uh, we would say that we need to, to reach those level, levels either. I think the student interveners will stand up and say uh, that we should be doing far more, uh, but we are trying to comply with this court's precedents, which require uh, the, the minimal consideration of race on a holistic basis. Our, this court's precedents, I mean, Grutter also says, sorry, let me put my readers on here, um, you know, using racial classifications are so potentially dangerous, however compelling their goals, they can be employed no more broadly, going down a little bit further, all governmental use of race must have a logical endpoint, reasonable durational limits, sunset provisions, and race-conscious admissions policies. And I gather, you know, Justice Alito saying, when is it end? When is your sunset? When will you know? Because Grutter very clearly says this is so dangerous. Grutter doesn't say this is great. We embrace this. Grutter says this is dangerous and it has to have an end point. And I hear you telling Justice Alito there is no end point. No, Your Honor, and I apologize if I gave that impression. So, so three points on the end point. We enthusiastically embrace the durational requirement, and we have tried to do everything possible to uh, adopt race-neutral alternatives from the time of Grutter to today to minimize our consideration of race. Uh, in a university where our endowment during the uh, our endowment during the record was around $3 billion, we have spent well north of a billion dollars on financial aid programs uh, to try to recruit low-income students across the board. Uh, and I think that kind of that's the first generation race-neutral alternatives. And the second are to try to expand the pool. Uh, we have an incredibly extensive program where around half of our transfer students are, come from community colleges. if I could just colleges. interrupt for one second, how do you know when you're done? You know, Justice Alito said if you have exact correlations to the member, uh, to the, the number, the percentage in the population of a particular group, and you said you're not done then. So when would the race, con when would you have the end point? I, oh, I, 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 I appreciate that you're undertaking all those efforts, but when is the end point? I, I meant to respond to Justice Alito, meaning that we do not need to reach that point for uh, us to feel that we uh, have met our diversity goals. Uh, I mean, we are, what we're doing today uh, is we feel that we are achieving the educational benefits of diversity. So it's and not necessary, but is it sufficient? I think that in that scenario, uh, it might be likely that our qualitative process in terms of constant examination of our campus climate would, would reach a point where we would feel 
uh, that uh, we had reached the educational benefits but, of diversity. But, but that's, I'm sorry, finish. <clears throat> Oh, so I just want to be, uh, be very clear uh, on the endpoint, if I may. Uh, we think that history shows that these programs can and do end. The early programs, as Justice Ginsburg has mentioned, uh, principally, and many of them principally benefited white women. Uh, the uh, program in Baki and the program, the federal contractor program this court upheld and fully loved explicitly included Asian Americans as among their beneficiaries. And we have reached a point now where uh, we feel that we are able to minimally consider race. Uh, I, don't see how, I don't see how you can say that the program will ever end. Your position is that race matters because it's necessary for diversity, which is necessary for the sort of education you want. It's not going to stop mattering at some particular point. You're always going to have to look at race because you say race matters to give us the necessary diversity. So I think there's two different questions there. We don't think that the compelling interest in diversity will ever expire. Uh, I think the question is whether race-conscious measures uh, need to be taken in the admissions process to reach our You're going to have goals. to check, right? You're not going to know whether they have a sufficient number of African Americans to give you the diversity you say is necessary if you don't look and check. I think there will be some attention to numbers, and but the feedback loop between our assessment of our campus environment and the admissions process, uh, we will celebrate the day when we get to the point and where we have uh, reached the point where we do now with our minimal consideration of race. Well, we I think say, the, the difficulty you're having answering some of these questions about endpoint were probably uh, in the mind of Justice O'Connor when she wrote the opinion in Grutter for the majority and, as Justice Barrett said, indicated that um, these racial classifications are uh, potentially dangerous and, and must have a logical endpoint. And instead of leaving it vague, the opinion didn't say uh, until you reach a point where you're satisfied that diversity has been achieved or something vague like that. It said 25 years uh, in there. And so I want to hear how you address that part of the Grutter precedent, because as I understand your answer, you would extend it far beyond 25 years indefinitely, and that would be an extension, I think, or you can tell me how you read the 25-year language. But I think the reason it's there, and I think it's real important because there are four paragraphs leading up to that, is because of the difficulty you're having answering the question of when, without that time limit, when it would otherwise be achieved. And now finally, um, one, one more. And finally, is there some connection between how race is being used and the concerns that some of my colleagues have about uh, the amount of time. So what, what I'm trying to get at or think about is whether um, Baki, for example, um, Baki was a set-aside program as far as I understood, that there was actually 16 um, seats in a class of 100 that were being set aside for underrepresented minorities, and therefore, obviously, the concerns about perniciousness and being problematic um, and we want it to end. <laughs> we don't want this going on forever. But when you have a situation like this, in which you're talking about a holistic review, other people are getting pluses in the system, no one's automatically getting a plus in the system, I wonder if the urge to end it, and what is the end it? The end it is to include race alongside 40 other characteristics. I wonder if it implicates the same kinds of concerns about the use of race. 
Yes, Justice Jackson, I think that there is a lot of force to that point, and I think that the UNC record really illustrates this point, that UNC has held itself to the standards this court has articulated in using race as only one of a multitude of factors in holistic admissions, in deploying race-neutral alternatives, and not using race when it's not necessary to achieve true student body diversity. And, and maybe that means uh, that given the limited way that race functions, it is taking longer for our society to get to the point that everyone agrees we will eventually reach. Uh, but I don't think that that's a basis to condemn Grutter now and halt progress in its tracks. Thank you. Okay. So that's a, a discussion that was Justice Jackson um, questioning uh, General Prelogar on that. Um, so your comments, Akil. Wow. <laughs> this is like oral exams. That was a lot to remember and keep in mind. Let me just try to track the order in which our audience heard these clips. And just to remind you all in the audience, I'm hearing them for the first time. Andy spent a lot of time finding some great clips for us to listen to, and I'm reacting to them in real time. The first set of exchanges were with Justice Alito and Attorney Seth Waxman, former Solicitor General of the United States. And Justice on, Gorsuch. Right, um, on the Harvard uh, case. Now, I think... Harvard is going to lose and deserves to lose, and I've said that for years. I, I was actually somewhere between disappointed and shocked by the district court's ostrich-like head in the sand a response to what the actual statistics were, which whatever else they showed, showed discrimination against Asian Americans vis-a-vis -vis whites. That can't pass muster under any of the Supreme Court's cases. So this is not Attorney Waxman's fault necessarily. He's just got a really hard case. And our audience will remember, you know, last time around, he was kind of um, hemming and hawing and shuffling. And he has the same problem today because he doesn't have a good case. And so here are the problems that came out in that one. He says, oh, it's a wee little tip, you know, and there are many, many factors. That's not true in Harvard. And Justice Jackson, at the end, said one of 40 factors, that was the North Carolina case. She has to recuse herself in the Harvard case because she's on the Harvard Board of Overseers. It's not a wee little thing at Harvard. I know this to be uh, true. And it's not one of 40 factors if we mean that it's counted you know, roughly the same weight, at least for blacks and, and Hispanics, as being an oboe player. That's just not true, or being rural or being a veteran. So it's a wee little tip, but if we get rid of it, everything will plummet. Those two things, you know, all the numbers will plummet, aren't quite too many factors. And then there are boxes. The way uh, uh, Neil Katyal and Akhil Amar tried to defend Baki-style affirmative action, there weren't going to be boxes. It was going to be, you know, genuinely holistic, you write a personal statement. But now there are boxes, and the boxes determine, you know, you're going to have to have to decide one box, two boxes, six boxes, blacks, blacks and Hispanics, blacks, Hispanics, Native Americans, how, how many boxes, and who fits within a box? Are Afghanis the same as Pakistanis or not? The way the boxes now work, Pakistanis are um, in the box, Asian American, and Afghanis aren't. That's not the way Neil and I actually argued for affirmative action back in 1996. And um, there are caps, as a practical matter, on Asians in Harvard, and um, Seth Waxman can't quite admit that, and he hides behind the record and, and uh, um, or the district court's findings, I should say, but I'm not buying it. And then they said, you know, 
And these are all the, the, the problems that Seth Waxman had, and they're not of his own making. They're the problems of the case that he inherited. So it's not just a tip. It's not just one of many factors. This is at Harvard. They are actually discriminating against Asians. They do have boxes, which, determine, which are going to mean not quite holistic. You're either in a box or not a, outside of a box, and we're going to have to decide how many boxes there are. You know, do octoroons count as blacks, and how many categories other than blacks? And what's, when's the end? And he didn't give an answer to that, okay? Because Harvard isn't giving him an answer to that, and so that's why he could shuffle and you know and and and, and hedge and and bob and weave. Joe Lewis once said about Billy Kahn, he can run, but he can't hide. Okay, this is that's, that was a boxing. That was my response, my my set of reactions to Seth Waxman. I'm predicting Harvard loses. Okay, now later on we get at, to a couple of other points. One. The proportionality point. Sam Alito said underrepresented. What is underrepresented vis-a-vis a certain population? Well, that's proportional. Okay. And if proportional is a, if you're trying to go for proportions, the problem is not only that you don't have enough of certain groups, but you have too many of other groups. And the too many of other groups aren't just whites. They're Asians, aren't just Gentiles, the Goyim, they're Jews, okay? So, so now you see some of the, if you start focusing on underrepresentation as opposed to historically discriminated against. So why are they talking about underrepresentation? That's like a mathematical point. We're going to have to compare it to a pool, to a baseline. Why aren't they saying historically discriminated against? Ah, that wouldn't be a diversity rationale. That would be a remedial rationale. And what did justice Amy Coney Barrett say, we are hearing her voice, you know, now in this conversation. This was, I think, a direct quote. I wrote it down. Our precedents rule that out. The remedy approach is ruled out by our precedents. This is the pincer movement, you see, because diversity has all these problems to it and, and a remedy is ruled out. This is why when Neil and I wrote way back when, we had to try to squeeze everything in diversity. And truth be told, even as I wrote it, I actually felt... This is awkward because I'm not really being able to say what I truly want to say. And, and ordinarily, and, and, and you might say, well, Akil, I thought that you're a kind of a straight and an honest scholar. I am. That's the one thing that I've ever written that was sort of especially designed just to persuade a, a, a court. And I, and I said, but I tried to be honest with it. I am working within the precedence the court has itself established. I'm not going to give you an originalist argument. In uh, This was a piece that I wrote with Neil called Baki's Fate. I'm not going to give you an originalist argument. I'm just going to give you an argument according to the precedence. And the precedence, as I honestly read them, kind of tend to rule out remedy but do leave open diversity. And then I actually said, but I'm going to, at the very end, I'm the diversity count I've tried to offer is actually very much influenced by certain remedial concerns, I, I have to be honest. And, and here's why, because I think it should phase out. Um, and it shouldn't phase out, this was the Chief Justice, if you know diversity is great and we should all do it and it's not corrosive and it does not cost, but, but if it's very, very dangerous medicine, but we do it because of history and remedy, then we, we should phase out. Now, now this- before, you, before you leave that point, Akil, I just want to give you an opportunity to... Uh, to cure a problem that you may have raised. You said um, that this is the one time you've written something to try to persuade the court on a particular case. But of course, you've recently written a brief in Moore versus Harper in an attempt to persuade the court in part um, to reach a certain point. 
Now, let me let me give you the opportunity. I believe my my sense is that that while in Baki you you kind of hedged and fudged because you were trying to persuade the court, that's not the case in Moore versus Harper. Am I right? You you stand behind a hundred percent everything you say in that brief. Is that right? Correct, and it builds on an article that I wrote, co-wrote with Vic. Um, that wasn't about any pending court case at all, just getting the issue correct. So the two things I would say about the difference between my recent stuff and Moore versus Harper, I mean, I'm always writing things that I, I think actually are of interest to the justices, but what was unique about the Baki piece is it was only about what the cases say and with almost no originalism. And I said we very explicitly this is not an originalist analysis at all. It's only an analysis of the cases. It's written overwhelmingly for the benefit of justices going forward rather than the understanding of a, a broader audience. Um, so it was it was targeted to the court, as is my brief. But my brief, you see, isn't a piece of, of, of pure scholarship. It's styled as a, a, you know, a, a brief as such. But it's not just about the cases. The brief is all about originalism. The Bakke piece was just an analysis of the cases for mainly the benefit of the justices. And what I said is, in it, the only time I really felt that I'm not telling the whole story, and the reason I'm not is the court won't let me tell the whole story mm-hmm. if I'm trying to persuade it. Because it's telling me by the by the remedial uh, be, diversity what, distinction. Because of what. Justice Barrett actually said, this is her quote, our precedents rule that out, meaning the remedial approach, which I actually do believe in. But our pre- the court's precedents ruled it out, and I just didn't want to fight that fight. Ordinarily, as a pure academic, I'll fight the fight and then say, oh, but the court has rejected this, and so here's part two. I just did – so half – another thing is half of that article did get written, mm-hmm. in effect. And I'm, I'm trying to cure that now by trying to say the best argument for affirmative action may be a remedial argument, and the remedial argument is about endpoints, um, uh, which is what you've been hearing about, a diversity argument. Chief Justice Roberts right. If it's good, going forward, we should continue it forever. But if it's a remedy that is certain... Now, here's what I said about endpoints in writing with Neil. One is that affirmative action would generally phase out um, in education, and this was, remember, before... Well, I keep calling it Gruder. Some of them call it Gruder. Some of them call it Grutter. But it's the Michigan law school case, um, the Gruder and Gratz cases. They were companion cases. Later, the Gruder decision, Grutter decisions, suggested 25 years, I think actually as a maximum, not as a minimum. But there are different ways of, of reading Justice O'Connor's language. Above and beyond that, and I'll come back to that um, endpoint language, Neil and I said, here's what's really interesting about diversity as a theory. It's mainly about education, the educational benefits. That's its logic. Justice Thomas pushed back against that, but if that's his logic, it's actually within a person's life about something that happens pretty early on, and then it ends. You graduate. And in a world without ever scholar, Angie, you know, there is an end point actually for, for most folks, their formal education ends. And, and that was an advantage, we thought, for the justices who didn't want to see the codification of every domain of life. They adopted a theory that was actually had a special focus on education, which happens pretty early in a person's life and then 
ends. Well, the theory, the theory that uh, was expounded in this case is that by educating this diverse group, you're providing opportunity and you're creating pipelines um, that will inevitably diversify the rest of society. So and she, that was the and that was the argument that we made in 1996, and 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 we thought that that, that see because we understood that that affirmative action is dangerous and corrosive, and we didn't try to run away from that. But now, actually, to, but actually, by doing but that argument, I think, um, in a way, it has some of the problems of the remedial argument, right? Because it's not about education per se. Like, okay, I'm in a class, and I'm going to get a better education because there's there are other people in that class uh, from different backgrounds. That What does that have to do with the opportunity that's going to be created for those people? Nothing. Very nice, very nice point, which is why, you see, I was frustrated because the court only let me say diversity, but in fact, some of my rationales were remedial, some of them were pipeline-oriented, and, and that's what I meant when I said it was the um, least honest piece because I, I just felt I couldn't say all of these things because the court made certain things unsayable. And that piece was especially about, in effect, persuading one person, Sandra Day O'Connor. That, um, and, and that's not how I usually write. I usually am writing for a much broader audience. Okay, I'm not going to persuade the court today, but in 15 years, in 20 years, they'll you know, see the light or whatever. But okay, so but this was a much more narrow litigation-oriented Right, piece. but we're not litigating Baki now. We're litigating this. And, and, right. and now we've got... This question of endpoints and, and right, and the lawyers didn't give an answer. They were given many opportunities to say twenty-five and done. That was a lifeline to them. That was an off-ramp. They chose not to take it, and it's not their fault. Their clients told them, "We won't, you know, we don't want you to to give this away." And the clients may very well lose the case because of that. The the university, so they they were offered the opportunity to say. We see 25 years as a cap. It's not just a ceiling, but a floor. We think we need 25 years. Give us 25 years. And then we're going to haggle about whether 25 years means the graduating class four years from now or the current you know, mm-hmm. um, admissions class or whatever. A final two points. One, if you had asked me in 1996 whether we were going to have a black president of the United States um, within the next 15 to 20 years. I would have said, no way, no how. And we did. To me, I'm just, you know, and other people are going to have very different reactions. Oh, he's saying, you know, one and done, Obama, and therefore, you know, forget about 200 years of history. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, if you ask me just honestly, did the world dramatically change for me psychologically when Barack Obama became president of the United States? So I say yes, and I say that as a person of color. That to me was a very big, because they didn't want to peg themselves to any markers at all. You know, they kept saying, well, how will you know? And what, will, what are your metrics? And, and, and when will it end? And, and they bobbed and weaved, you know, they can run, but they can't hide. And I think they lose the case without being you know, more forthright on that. So, so for me, I actually thought, oh, um, when I wrote 1996, if you said that we're going to have it for another 30 years and we're going to, in the meantime, have a black president and a and a, a black vice president and all sorts of other things. And a runoff in Georgia between two um, African-Americans, I would have said, wow, you are such an optimist because I'm not seeing that, but, but I have now seen it. Final point. And um, by, by the way, but, and, you know, you keep saying 25 years and they keep talking about it. 
but uh, Justice Barrett made the point. It's 50 years since Bakke. Since, since Bakke. Right. It was 25 um, more years. And Grutter, the point was made here. Like she asked the Harvard uh, attorney, well, has your system changed since Bakke? That was a that was a very canny question because that question really goes, in my view, to the question of when does the clock start? Okay, so the clock does not start at Gruder if you didn't change anything at Gruder. If you're if you're the same as you were in Baki, that means you had fifty years. Do, do not underestimate that these justices they they really look. They all went to fancy schools that had affirmative action. This is stuff that they that they understand in a way. Truthfully. I'm not sure all of them understand the deep um, background of independent state legislature theory. Okay. That's not what they grew up with. And that's why in that one, yes, I have written stuff. Andy, you're right. That's trying to persuade them. But I also write, wrote stuff that is in which I said everything that I wanted to say and, and held nothing back. Whereas yes, what you're correcting is in that piece that I wrote with Neil, I really felt I'm not able to say certain things because I wanted to talk about remedy truthfully and, and never did. I tried to fit remedy and pipeline into diversity. And Andy, you're seeing why it's not a great fit. Final point that I want to make about these um, exchanges is our audience also, remember I'm hearing this for the first time, heard mainly grenades, but there was one pineapple. Okay, what do I mean by that? The justices are sitting up there behind their bench and they're, they're lobbing stuff at the attorneys and, and these are hand grenades and they're about to explode and the attorneys are trying to figure out like how to lob them back or, or uh, defuse them or, or deal them. These are their opportunities to give an answer, but they come from a position of skepticism. Maybe it's feigned. It's just, you know, a Socratic testing of a proposition that a justice actually has some sympathy for, but is going to need to know the strong counter argument. Or maybe, I, I think in this case, it's genuine skepticism of the offenders of affirmative action. So those I'm calling grenades, and most of the questions you heard were grenades. But with Tangie Brown-Jackson, you heard a pineapple, okay? It looks like a grenade, unless you're looking at it really carefully, but it was actually a friendly question, you know, to which the answer is, yes, you're so right, Justice, o- Justice X, you know, how right you are. I wish I had thought of that or, or, or said that, but I truthfully have questioned the premise, which is, that affirmative action is just one of 40, you know, uh, racial affirmative action is just one of 40 factors, all of which, um, you know, are roughly the same weight and they're r- really pretty small weights. They're wee little tips in an other in a system that, that otherwise isn't focused on that. I, again, I don't know UNC, um, but that's not how affirmative action operates in lots of institutions that I've seen up close. Right. I mean, listening to all these things, I mean, it seems to me that there's a certain logic which uh, which emerges, which there wasn't really a very good refutation for. You know, the logic is, well, the um, it's you know, it's it's a strong preference. No, it's not. It's one of 40. Well, if that's the case then why would everything plummet if you got rid of it? Okay. Which it wouldn't for an oboe player. Right. Um, And then finally, when you put that next to this question of, all right, well, when will the preferences end? Um, Then, and no one had an answer. Um, It really is a problem because what what it's saying then is that we can't accomplish it without the preferences. 
Because so they, they, they were given the off-ramp. They were given the possibility. There's this famous New Yorker cartoon. I bet most of the people in the audience have seen it or, um, or a reference to it at least. It's a, a, a fat cat executive sitting behind an enormous desk, and he's looking at his calendar or something, and he's on the phone with some, someone who's obviously trying to schedule something with him. And he says, how about never? Does never work for you? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's what the answer is that the lawyers get. They said, you know, the justice said, give us an endpoint. And they said, how about never? Or else they simply said, trust us, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, we're Harvard um, and we're going to do the right thing. Um, and then we're not even going to give you what metrics we're going to use to, uh, not only will we not give you a hard date, we're not even going to quite give you a tight, you know, set of metrics or criteria by which maybe especially externally observable. So I just gave you one. It's, it's, it's one and it's embarrassing that I'm focusing on so much, but I am because it meant so much to me as someone who understands himself to be a person of color. Because I never thought I would see a black present in my lifetime. I didn't. I actually wrote when, when I was a student, I actually, in my student note, I said, I don't think we'll ever see one. That's only one of, so we could, we, they could have promulgated, they could have said, here are eight different metrics. And when six of them have achieved certain things, we'll think we're there or close enough to be there that we're going to seriously, you know, reevaluate. You're a physician. Yes. You know, after your mom's surgery, you know they were going to test the ejection fraction and you knew what number you were looking for, mm-hmm. okay? And, and what would be a good number and what wouldn't And because you're a person of science. Yes, Andy, this is what you said earlier. You're really data-driven and they didn't give the justices anything other than, frankly, I heard, and maybe you edited it out, but I don't think you did. I heard actually a lot of fluff. And, of course, and this is related to the question we raised earlier, which is, well, what actually would be adequate diversity, you know, the, the, from the point of view of the educational advantages? You know, so and that's where we get into this question of honesty. Is that really what it's about? Or is it also about questions of opportunity? Is it also about questions of remedial? Um, is it about questions of social justice? And I think the answer, if we're being honest, is yes, it is. It is. Well, to quote Justice Amy Coney Barrett, quote, our precedents rule that out. That's the pincer, you know, strategy, because you can't talk about these other things. You can only talk about diversity, and diversity isn't, and this is what I meant before, the most honest and complete way of talking about all the things that you really think are relevant. And that's what I meant when I said that earlier piece wasn't entirely honest because I wasn't able to, to actually talk about things because our precedents ruled them out. And I was trying to actually work within the precedents to persuade justices who were very precedent driven. Now, okay. So of course, without race-based preferences, if that were to be the outcome, the question then would be what is allowed? Um, What constitutes an unconstitutional preference or something like that? Now, there have been some things that are out there, like, for example, the 10% plan. We talked about some of the problems with that in our last episode, where that's, in some ways, to the degree that that promotes diversity, it promotes it because some schools are, you know, de facto segregated or nearly segregated or at least, you know, um, disproportionate. Um, so that's, that's one approach. Um, they talked in some of the quotes that we had about how they've increased a lot of the financial aid and that will, um, that creates a more level playing field in terms of the applicant pool. You have people applying that wouldn't apply otherwise because they couldn't afford it. Um, so that creates a more equal pool. But of course, 
the point here that Harvard's making is, no, that's not enough in North Carolina. It's not giving us what we want. How do you know that? Well, they don't really say. But um, obviously, Justice Alito calls attention to the fact that you, in order to know that, you have to be measuring, and you know, so that means you're you're checking boxes. But anyway, okay. So, all right, but let's imagine a world where uh, you don't have these boxes. So now they're going to discuss some aspects of that. Would you have any objection uh, if? You do not ask can, uh, candidates for admission to, to uh, check a box uh, what their race is. But you are allowed to take into consideration what an applicant would say in, a, in an essay about uh, um, having to confront discrimination uh, growing up and how he or she did that. You are allowed to take in consideration what a faculty recommender said. You know, one of the things that, you know, this applicant uh, would bring is uh, – uh, how to uh, uh, deal with uh, racial uh, discrimination uh, in an area or in a school where it's, it, 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 he's part of a very small minority. Um, is there any, do you have any objection to that sort of introduction of, of race on behalf of a particular applicant? Absolutely not, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. And in fact, at the end of this case, at the end of the trial, it was, it was, we, were, we discovered that Harvard had amended its reading procedures for applications, and there had been an amendment that said, you only should take into account race if someone talks about it on their essay or in their, in their recommendation letters. Harvard deleted that instruction and said, that is not how we use race, and that should have never been put in there. So we really are, in this case, talking about the checkbox. So you agree that um, with respect to the essays, um, I mean, the Chief Justice suggested that one aspect of racial experience is confronting discrimination, but there are also other aspects of racial experience. Justice Alito gave an example earlier. Um, but you agree that with respect to the essays, whether it's guidance counselors or whether it's students, can, um, can express whatever uh, views they choose to express about um, their own racial experiences and the relevance of that for admissions officers? Yes. The, the, what, what Title VI bans is race itself as a consideration. And so if a university gives credit to a black student who writes an essay about overcoming discrimination and equal credit to an Asian student who writes an essay about overcoming discrimination, then that is not race itself. But, that is over... Oh, sorry. Finish. Uh, so say that, that, that's overcoming discrimination, which Justice Scalia wrote in Croson is not a racial classification. But I guess, you know, in our earlier argument, Justice Kagan pointed out that this gets to be slicing the salami pretty finely. I mean, it's one thing to say, yes, that shows resilience because you've written about overcoming discrimination. And, and a student could write about any number of obstacles that they've overcome from physical disabilities on down the line. But what if, you know, Justice Jackson had asked in the last argument, um, you know, about pride, what if, what if an applicant wrote an essay about how integral their racial identity was to them as a source of pride and um, the cultural uh, attributes of the racial heritage were very important? Would that be okay, even if it were all intimately tied up, say, with you know the traditions of a Mexican family? And, and if the answer is no, that can't be extricated from race, why would that be different than someone writing about how important it was to them to have this passion for music in their life, that they loved music? 
I think culture, tradition, heritage are all uh, not off limits for students to talk about and for universities to consider. They can't consider that. They can't read that and say, oh, this person is Hispanic or black or Asian and therefore I'm going to credit that. They need to credit something in unique and individual in what they actually wrote, not race itself. I, I'm, I'm a little confused because this almost sounds like a different kind of viewpoint discrimination. <coughs> and under our strict scrutiny standards, we're not supposed to discriminate on the basis of viewpoint or discriminate on the basis of religion. They're considered as sacrosanct, I believe, as race. And yet what you're suggesting is um, that uh, the viewpoint that somehow being a minority that overcomes discrimination in the way you define it as important, as overcoming obstacles, that that's okay. But if you're a black person who's from an affluent family, who may be the only class president ever in a white school's history, that that fact shouldn't feature. That's a form of viewpoint discrimination, isn't it? So way back when, uh, in 1996, I was trying to explain why someone who's a pretty intelligent, canny fellow Justice Lewis Powell might say quotas are impermissible, but plus pluses are okay. Because the sophisticates said, look, in the long run, you know, a quota system, uh, pluses are basically quota systems. They are targets. Administrators are trying to, to, to meet the target. So all that a plus system does is, in effect, fuzz it up and make it less obvious um, and, and less transparent. To which one answer is exactly, we, that's what we want, because actually we don't uh, have a very highly divisive politics and quotas act, are very open and, and transparent and therefore divisive politically. And so we want the administrators just to kind of fuzz it all up. That's the cynical take, but it's trying to achieve a more racial integration of really important pipelines without generating backlash. That's sort of one take. But another take was... Actually, it matters, and here's why. And, and, and Neil and I defended the idea of pluses and not quotas because we said, in a quota system, you're going to have to have boxes. And we actually talked about boxes. You're going to have to decide how many boxes there are and who fits within each box and, and how, ma how many plus points each box gets. Is someone who's seven-eighths, so to speak, black? I'm not making up the word. The word is octoroon. Um, but seven of their eight great-grandparents were understood as white, and one of their eight great-grandparents was understood as black. Does that person count as white or black? And picking that specifically, because that was Homer Plessy in Plessy versus Ferguson. Homer Plessy was, in the parlance of that era, an octoroon, one-eighth black. And he went into the white car, because there was a car that was white by law, and a car that was car train car that was non-white by law because he said I am white by law. That was part of actually the Plessy litigation. And you're going to have to decide if you have boxes, if you have quotas, do octoroons count as black? What about descendant of slaves versus someone who is an immigrant from Nigeria or, or Kenya? You're going to have to decide if Afghani's are the same for box purposes as Pakistani's. That's why he picked Justice Alito picked. The, the, the Afghani hypotheticals. So that's one thing. And how many boxes? And what we said is, if you have a plus factor, all things considered analysis, that's precisely what you don't have. 
you're, you, first of all, you don't have boxes for race different than oboe playing or being rural or speaking multiple languages. It's all holistic. You don't treat race differently, even in, on the form than anything else. You don't have boxes. You don't have to decide how many boxes and who fits within a box. But what we, you do have, and we already have it, we say, for education is a personal application. This is our quote, a personal application file with a personal statement, recommendations, and the like. Now, that's not true for all jobs everywhere. They don't want, have you write a personal statement for, for when you're necessarily, if you're, you're applying to, to work for IBM, maybe some companies ask you to do that, but, but not all. So unique to education often is this personal statement about your life and, and who you are. So that was the kind of affirmative action that we, Neil and I, were advocating way back in 1996. It's possible that that's what we're going to be going back too. And then the question will be, won't schools be basically trying to still hit certain target numbers and all the rest, but fuzz it all up um, so it's going to be harder for the polity to know that that's what's going on and harder for a, a court to find that there has been actionable discrimination. So, Well, so, if they don't actually count, you know, I mean, so, so again, the point here is, yes, you can talk about it. It's relevant to who you are. It, t- it tells us about you. We can make an assessment. We like this guy. We don't like this guy. But you can't start counting, okay, here's how many black people that overcame discrimination we admitted. You can't, you know, and and, and if you have a comparable story from an Asian American overcoming discrimination, this was mentioned in the ar- argument, then that person should get an equal. So, and, Andy, here's, here's what we just come up with. Um, if you don't allow boxes, okay, it's actually going to be from a bureaucratic point of view. Harder um, to count. Um, yeah, and, 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 and if you did try to count, that might be evidence of acting illegally. Right. Schools might not even have the data anymore about how many Asians and how many blacks, and, um, and there won't be any qualitative distinction, a hard-edged distinction between you know, uh, a Pakistani and an Afghani. Um, you know, and, 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 and there's certain Pashtun populations that, that are actually on the border of Pakistan and, and, and Afghanistan, I, I can tell you. So um, we won't have that um, because we won't. So um, this will mean the end of the box. I mean, that, that, that may be in the, you know, in the application. But then the question yes. becomes, you know, what happens, you know, kind of ex post facto. So, you know, they, they do it and then they say, OK, now let's take a look at what happened. And they say, oh, we wound up with, you know, 15% blacks or something like that. Now what? Do they change anything on that basis? But but how how would we even know 15% blacks? Well, you could do a survey afterwards is what I'm saying. Oh, how they self-identify. Yes, and that's what what they're going to do, you know, or or if they're allowed to do it. So the question is, does the court include in, in, in such a decision? Okay, so we have a series of personal statements, you know, Things that I've overcome because I'm black, that's one. Things that I've overcome because I'm Hispanic, that's two. Things that I've overcome because I'm uh, Italian-American, that's three. Things that I've overcome because I'm Asian-American, whether you call me Afghani or Pakistani or, or Indian or what have you. Things that I've overcome because I'm short and have a big nose. Um, and there is prejudice against people, I, I, I'm just reporting, who are short and have big nose. How would you know? Okay. <laughs> 
Okay, so this um, um, one of my. Uh, I'm not um, short, by the way, so I don't get to uh, say. I know. One of my children wrote a very self-deprecating missions essay because this uh, child had, had not learned how to ride a bicycle until late teenage years or something. I thought it was a very charming little essay, and it wasn't. I'm a victim in, in some ways. It's just like here's something about me. It's actually not that admirable perhaps but this is kind of weird to you know i'm i'm 15 years old and riding a tricycle um, <laughs> so all right well let's so so okay so we've banded about some of these issues let's listen to how the justice has bandied them about mr Sharpridge, can i take you back to justice sotomayor's question she described an applicant who came from a an underprivileged school who maybe didn't have the best teaching best opportunities to score well on the sat um, and I want to know whether, in your view of the world, if, an es if a student wrote an essay describing some of the experiences that Justice Sotomayor said, you know, I struggled with socioeconomic diversity, racial prejudice, things that shape who I am, in your view of the world, could a university take that into account without offending the Equal Protection Yes, class? I think this court's precedents even note that the act of overcoming discrimination is, 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 is a separate and a part distinction from race, in part because any member of a race may be in a position, or a member of any race might be put in a position where they feel somewhat isolated or somewhat different. Okay, but so I understood you telling Justice Sotomayor that you thought that would not be permissible, but that's not your... No, I no, I think I, I, meant to, I meant to say quite different. What, what we object to is the consideration of race and race uh, by race itself. Race in a box-checking way as opposed to race in an experiential which, statement. Which, which the record in this case is that they can give the preference based on the check of the box alone. Okay, so, so there you go. Just what I was saying, box-checking. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now we have a discussion with uh, Justice Kagan and Chief Justice Roberts. May I go back to Justice Barrett's question and, and, and just make sure I understand your answer to it? You said uh, not race in a box-checking way, but then Justice Barrett said race in an experiential way. And you said yes to that. And, and you said, well, of course you can always say that you've been subject to discrimination. And certainly being subject to discrimination is, is one part of what it means to have race uh, affect your experiences generally. I mean, what are you saying a, a college can look at and what are you saying a college can't look at when they're reading an essay uh, about, you know, uh, the experiences th that a person has had in their lives. Well, the, re well, the reason why race may, be, may have some contextual relevance when you're evaluating an essay, right? A story about, about being subjected to racial discrimination obviously indicates that the applicant has grit, that the applicant has overcome some hardship. It, it tells you something about the character and the experience of the applicant other than their skin color. So and, that's and, what we object it, to. So you said again, being subject to discrimination. Are you conceding to that there are other aspects of racial identity that could form part of an essay that universities would want to look at? Or are you saying, no, this just has to be if you have complaints about uh, racial discrimination? Well, no. For example, a, a, a student, you know, an Asian-American student who took an active interest in perhaps uh, you know, traveling back to their grandmother's, you know, country of origin, or somebody who, you know, was involved in some extracurricular activities with a particular, you know, interest in supporting, you know, Asian American students, for example, those kind of show dedication, they show extracurricular involvement, they show perhaps a global interest in the world. There's they, all sorts of non-racial criteria also, those meet. They also show a pretty um, 
not very savvy applicant, right? Because the one thing his essay is going to show is that he's Asian American, and those are the people who are discriminated against. That's, that, yes, that is true, and that's, that's the record in both cases, is that racial preferences operate to the disadvantage of Asian American applicants. So just, just, it is the case that African American uh, applicants can highlight that aspect uh, of their background and situations such as the one that you mentioned, and that people reading that file in the admissions office can look at that and take that into account. Yes, what we object them taking into account is just race independent of any of that kind of information. But that, but how- okay, so it's complicated. And in our earlier episode, that was part of what hung up attorney Waxman in the Harvard case when Justice Alito just sort of kept skewering him, saying, what is your explanation for the fact that the Asian Americans in the one soft subjective part where there's a, a, some personality score, what's your explanation of the fact that Harvard keeps basically saying that, that Asian Americans sort of flunk the personality, the character test, that they're getting consistently lower scores on that? What's your explanation other than explicit or implicit bias and and I didn't think Attorney Waxman had a good argument, good answer. And it's not his fault because I'm not sure there is a good answer. It's just that that's why Harvard des- deserves to lose. What I'm now hearing for the first time is, oh, there's a similar issue at UNC. Because remember, I say I, I don't think I, n- I know the UNC system as well as I know the Harvard system. Yeah, I don't think that they, they, were, that they tried that issue, um, specifically on Asian Americans in the UNC case. Um, but... There was uh, some discussion in the UNC case about um, how Asian Americans in general tried to try to conceal their race in their application, and, that, and that sort of thing. Chief Justice Roberts did talk about that in another uh, another episode. Interesting. Now, I know there's at least one other Kagan clip that you have for us. I I was hoping on that one, when she talked about overcoming adversity, right? Um, she might have talked about overcoming shortness, but alas, no. no. But let me tell you, short people are discriminated against. Just ask Randy Newman. Yes. Well, we I I'm going to end with that quote. Um, but first, I think we should wrap up this uh, section. We're coming to the end anyway, but we should wrap up this section on the on the essays with Justice Kavanaugh, who kind of put it together, I think, with this uh, this comment. Your position will put a lot of pressure going forward if it's accepted on what qualifies as race neutral in the first place. You said socioeconomic is race neutral, top 10 percent plan, race neutral um, is you want to respond to that? I'm sorry. I, I did not mean to interrupt. I just wanted to say that I actually don't think that's been the experience. There are nine states that have that have barred the use of race in their college admissions program. We're not aware of anyone who has challenged a race-neutral alternative on the ground that it's somehow... Right. I'm just making sure what qualifies as race-neutral in the first place. What if the college says we're going to give a plus to uh, descendants of slaves? Is that uh, race-neutral or not? I think descendants of slaves is a very difficult question because it's so it's so highly correlated with race in the history of our country. I'm not sure that any college has proposed that kind of a preference. It would well, have to I know. Be. We have to think forward about what will happen if you prevail in this case, and that seems uh, a potential, so I'm curious about your answer to that question. My, my, my instinct standing here is if that were the only basis, then, then that, that, that very quickly starts to look like just a pure proxy for race. It would obviously depend on the actual program as it, as it was implemented. Could could you give a plus to um, applicants whose parents were immigrants to this country? Uh, I think that you... Is that race neutral? 
Uh, I think that if it, if, if it is immigrants regardless of country and, yes. and regardless of their racial descendant, I think that that is probably closer to being okay. okay. So I put this in with the essays because I think the same question will arise as to whether, you know, it's race neutral to talk about overcoming discrimination. Uh, and I think, again, it comes down to how it's implemented. Right. And just to remind our audience, if you're picking the 10% plan precisely in order to boost the, the numbers of, of one racial group rather than another, the court will treat that as race neutral. But the great Ian Ayers has said, gee, why do we do that? Isn't that itself evidence that we don't think discriminating against whites is exactly the same thing as discriminating against blacks? Because if, if we chose a proxy um, in order to boost white numbers, that boost white numbers, that would be impermissible. But if we're choosing the proxy to boost, let's say, black numbers, that's okay. And that's what Justice Sotomayor asked about and we talked about in the last episode. Right. But of course, it can work both ways, because if you can't use those proxies, you know, then then what do you have? You have nothing. So I'm not sure she would be happy with that. The doctrine doesn't even interrogate that very closely. It says as long as it's race neutral, we aren't going to ask, at least if it's boosting black numbers, why you're doing it. Um, But if you're but we will ask why you're doing it if it actually ends up suppressing black numbers. And finally, you know, you brought up the point about affirmative action as being particularly designed, at least in the courts in the first place, for the educational realm. But it's become such a part of our society in some ways and such a part of our discourse that it's now, I think, for lack of a better word, integrated into uh, the general discussion about uh, racial justice. And Justice Kagan, I think, makes this point uh, I'm not sure she makes it deliberately, but this is here's what she has to say about that. Do you Upheld. think that uh, if you're a law firm or if you're a judge, if you're a judge and you want to have a diverse set of clerks, do you think a judge can't think about that in making clerkship decisions? Absolutely can think about it. Uh, this court's decision in Feeney says knowledge of race is not the violation. It is using it as a factor I'm to using, distinguish them. Let's, let's say a judge says, I want a diverse set of clerks. That's, you know, I want clerks who would, you know, grade on every, any number of criteria, but I also want a diverse set of clerks. So over the years, people will look at that and they'll say, there are Asian Americans there, there are Hispanics there, there are African Americans there, as well as there are whites there. Can a judge not do that? I mean, I think that's a, that's a, that is a admirable goal. I don't think a judge could implement that goal by putting a thumb on the scale against Asian applicants or giving a big preference to black and Hispanic applicants. I think you need to treat people treat, uh, equally based on race, just as you're not going to hold my race against me in judging the quality of my arguments. I think race, uh, racial diversity is important because it's a good metric to make sure our, our, our institutions are equally open. You can certainly be concerned about that. But the question is using racial classification, telling people that you didn't get the clerkship because of your race. Yeah, but the, the, the point here is, look, everybody would rather achieve all our racial diversity goals through race neutral means. Everybody would rather that. And that's certainly what our cases say you have to do. The question is, when the race neutral means don't get you there, are you prevented from taking race into account in all those ways that I said? And I could add a dozen more businesses who find it necessary, you know, in order to achieve their economic objectives. 
to have racially diverse workforces. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And the question is, when race-neutral means can't get you there, don't get you there, when you've tried and tried and they still won't get you there, can you go race-conscious? I don't believe so, Justice Kagan. And I think this court has already said in Parents Involved that racial diversity is not a compelling interest. It is the overall diversity of all kinds on college campuses. Brilliant question by my friend Elena Kagan. I know in some episodes I've been critical of some of the things she said. She is really impressive at her best. And this was at her best because here's the unspoken premise. I... Elena Kagan, and almost all my colleagues on the Supreme Court do take race into account in an affirmative action-like way, maybe in a plus factor way, in a holistic way, not in a box-checking way, uh, because we don't actually ever ask you to check a box on your application, but we do take into account in hiring our clerks. And if so, you know, why is that okay? Because he said, oh, you can't do it. But if we do do it, then maybe we're rejecting your position, and what does that mean? So, Brilliantly played, Justice Kagan. And she mentions all sorts of other things, businesses, because she's a very pragmatic person, actually. Um, but the clerkship thing was really great. The only thing I want to say uh, on that is, oh, Neil and I had an early version of that. Here's what we wrote back in, because we were trying to win over Sanity O'Connor. And we believe Justice O'Connor actually was like Justice Kagan in w- being willing to take things into account. Why wouldn't she, as the first woman on the Supreme Court, who was picked to be the first woman on the Supreme Court openly, avowedly, by Ronald Reagan, you know, the the biography of O'Connor, later written by Evan Thomas, is actually entitled First. So if that's how, you know, um, and so we believe that she actually did take race into account in part of a holistic process in picking her clerks. So here's what we wrote. And we were trying to persuade her. But she doesn't, she's not a strict colorblindness person because the way you persuade someone is actually to figure out who that person already is, what they believe, and then try to find some common ground. So here's what Neil and I wrote. And we put it very gently and we buried it in a footnote, but this was actually what we said in footnote 127 of this 1996 piece, Baki's Fate. Another clue about a given judge or justice's leanings on Baki may perhaps be teased out of his or her own policies in hiring law clerks. Does a particular jurist, as a government actor, consider applications in an absolutely strict race-blind way? Or instead, does the judge think about how a clerk with a particular racial identity and life experience might have something distinctive to teach the judge and fellow clerks? Question mark. So it was very, very gently put, you know, um, but um, she picked up on it in a big way. And I say, well played, uh, Justice Kagan. Although, again, I'm not sure, you know, well, again, it could really work both ways. I mean, you know, a justice behaves a certain way, but is that necessarily reflective of how they think the law should be? But remember, I'm actually not opposed to all sorts of affirmative action, even though I've always been opposed to the box, you know, ban the box. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and our universities are box driven and that's the problem with administrators and they're just, and, and they are numbers driven there and Afghans are different than uh, Afghanis are different than Pakistanis. And there's a certain number of, of boxes and I think that's a bit of a sordid business, even though I, I actually think 
justices not only do take race into account um, in good ways, not Plessy and Brown ways that invents prejudice against historically discriminated against groups, but in affirmative action-like ways, they do take it into account holistically and only as a wee little tip plus because it's not in their interest to actually count it for much more than that because they want the best clerks because they only have four of them and it's a and it's a difficult job so i think most of them do most of them do it self-consciously they may not do it openly and publicly but they are aware that that is what they're doing so to repeat well played justice because because if the world well played justice kagan the world what we may move to is not a world with no affirmative action. Even if Harvard loses and UNC loses, it's going to be a world where we don't have boxes anymore. Yeah, and I think that Justice Kagan and Justice Kavanaugh in the last two clips that we used uh, both looked to the future um, in, the, in that sense. And so uh, we'll see. So we'll be back with this, of course, again when the opinion comes out, which will be in a, in a number of months, and uh, I'm sure we'll get some reader, f- some listener feedback on it as well. Now we're a little over a week from uh, Moore versus Harper oral argument. So, and, and all I can say is M go blue. Yes, <laughs> meaning Yale. <laughs> <laughs> Why go blue? Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs>